Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 20th, 2023. On this week's show, Slate's Alex Kirshner will be here to run through the first two rounds of the men's NCAA tournament, which featured what may have been the worst loss in the history of college basketball. Sorry, Purdue. We'll also be joined by ESPN's Alden Gonzalez, who'll tell us about what he saw at the historic World Baseball Classic semifinal in Miami between Cuba and the United States. And finally, author David Epstein will talk with us about the legacy of Dick Fosbury, the high jumper who invented the immortal Fosbury flop. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Stefan, what is the alliterative thing that you've invented? Hmm. I have to the think about farce, that. The fatsis farce, the fatsis. Probably uh, involved, probably involved <laughs> failure, my kicking career, you know, if it would be something I'm known the for. The fatsis, field goal, fantasy, far, farce, flop, flop. Flop. I'm going to borrow from, I'm going to borrow from Dick Fosbury. We can't honor him in enough ways. Joel Anderson is busy working on Slowburn Season 8, becoming Justice Thomas and his beloved Froghorns of TCU fell to uh, Gonzaga. We're thinking of you, Joel. His also beloved Houston Cougars are still alive, though. In our Slate Plus segment this week, hell, or at least water, has frozen over because we're going to talk about hockey, ice hockey, with double of our old friend Patrick Fort, who once produced the show and is back with us filling in this week. And so we'll check in on the remarkable Boston Bruins, the also remarkable Connor McDavid and Alex Ovechkin in his chase for the all-time goal-scoring record. Tiaras discuss these frozen pond matters. You need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You get ad-free shows. You get to support us. Uh, All good things. Slate.com slash hangout plus. That's slate.com slash hangout plus. There are 16 teams left in the men's NCAA basketball tournament, and none of them are Kansas, Duke, or Kentucky. And if we toss in North Carolina, which didn't make the tourney, it's only the second time that none of those Blue Bloods have made the Sweet 16 since the tournament expanded to 64 teams in 1985. Of the 68 teams that started out with a chance last Tuesday, Florida, Atlantic, and Princeton are still playing, while Alabama and Houston, the two remaining number one seeds, are the betting favorites to win it all. 
Joining us now is our pal, Alex Kirshner, who's writing about the tournament for Slate and this year and every year until the end of time is picking Gonzaga to win it all. Good to have you as always, Alex. Great to be back with you both. Um, I know Stefan is foaming at the mouth to talk about Princeton, uh, but let's start with two teams that are no longer alive in the tournament, only one of which is from New Jersey. Fairly Dickinson lost to Florida Atlantic on Sunday night, but on Friday, the Knights of Hackensack joined UMBC as the only number 16 seeds ever to beat a number one in the men's tournament. The team they knocked off was Purdue, and you wrote, Alex, that the Boilers suffered the worst loss in the history of college basketball. You're a man who appreciates nuance, who always caveats heavily about how uh, in the history, of, the history of college basketball or college sports in general is long and chaotic. Um, but this was a bold pronouncement for you. What uh, led you to make it? Yeah, so I, I thought about this for a while. I, I had an entire sleepless red eye on Friday night into Saturday to mull this one over because, as I said, I, I can't sleep on an airplane. And I really do think that at least since the NCAA tournament became a 64-team endeavor in 1985, and now it's 68, of course. I think this is as bad as it gets, and I think I think it's worse than it gets uh, for anything prior for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, just on straightforward terms, I think Fairleigh Dickinson is the worst team to win an NCAA tournament game ever, uh, period. Just if you look at their statistical profile. They had the worst strength of schedule uh, in the season in all of Division I basketball, men's basketball. They did not win the Northeast Conference that they play in uh, because the reason that the Knights of Teaneck, by the way, Teaneck, got into the NCAA tournament uh, is that their counterpart in the NEC that won that league, uh, the team from Merrimack, was ineligible to play in the NCAA tournament because they were still within their first four years in Division One, And the NCAA has a rule that limits the postseason participation of those kinds of teams, trying to discourage schools from going up to D1 if they're not ready, basically. So this wasn't even a conference champion. Uh, they came from one of the worst conferences in Division One, the NEC, that has never had never, I believe, even uh, won an NCAA tournament game, uh, at least in the, in the modern era of the tournament. And in addition to that, they're the smallest team in Division One, the single smallest team in Division One, uh, with an average height of about six foot one. And you're playing against a team that has seven foot four center, likely Wooden Award winner Zach uh, Zach Eady for Purdue, uh, that has Big Ten caliber talent and size all over the floor, and you lose to that team. Uh, I, I don't see a a path to argue that this is not the worst loss in at least the modern history of, of college basketball. And I, I think there have been people who will bring up uh, Chaminade, for instance. You know, they beat Virginia when Virginia was number one in the country 40-some years ago at this point. I think it was 40 years ago this winter. But that was, you know, a regular season game played in Honolulu. It did not shake up anything about the way that season ultimately was going to go in college basketball, though it was shocking. This fellows is just is just disgusting. It's on a completely different level. <laughs> also, also involved a seven foot four man that that game, um, that being Ralph Sampson. So before you go, Stefan, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson, according to Wikipedia, its main campuses are in Madison, New Jersey, and it has other campuses in Florham Park, Hackensack, Teaneck, Vancouver, and Roxton. Yeah, that's how they market themselves. I think the main campus is on the Hackensack Teaneck border straddles Hackensack and Teaneck. <laughs> so you were both correct. 
uh, both wrong and correct at the same time. Love it. Thank you, Fairly Dickinson. What are your thoughts, Mr. Fatsis? Um, I'm with Alex. I mean, that was remarkable. I looked up some other stuff. This is the short, there's only one team shorter than Fairly Dickinson in sort of modern men's basketball. 2009-2010 Grambling State, which went 7-21. and 2014-15 UMass Lowell. Just as small as FDU, 12 and 17. Um, Alex, you had a great line. Watching the Knights try to guard Zach Eady was a bit like watching a bunch of small children try to guard a dad dunking on them on a Fisher-Price hoop at a birthday party. Um, and and I, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking watching this game. They did a great job of fronting the seven-foot-four guy and forcing him to pass the ball out beyond the perimeter where Purdue chucked up a lot of threes, and Purdue, as you point out, kind of sucked at chucking up threes during the regular season. This was not how they won basketball games. They wound up five for 26 from three against Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, they finished 278th in Division One in three-point shooting during the regular season. They did, and this is another reason that, that you're right to bring up, Stefan, about why this was such a bad loss for Purdue. I think we all understand that sometimes things happen with regards to a team having a hot shooting night or a cold shooting night, and, and things get nuts. You know, UMBC couldn't miss when they beat Virginia right. in 2018 as the first 16 to beat a one, and, and that, that happens. You know, that happens in basketball. It is a cruel game. But Purdue's game plan here was so perplexing. And it's not that FDU's wasn't good, but FDU just said, all right, every time Zach Eady gets the ball, we are going to have a swarm on him immediately. Even though we're the smallest team in the country, we think we can deny him some catches in the post and we think we can make him pass out of it. And they did. I mean, he had huge numbers in this game, but only took 11 shots from the field uh, because Fairleigh Dickinson was just all over him. And I think the disappointing thing for Purdue is that they did not seem to have anything in the bag other than, all right, Edie kicks out and we shoot. And we shoot threes and we shoot threes. Uh, Matt Painter is supposed to be a schematic savant, a really good ball coach who can draw up plays. And you mean to tell me that you couldn't find any mid-range game? You couldn't find any way to beat these Northeast Conference guards off the dribble and get decent looks a little closer to the basket when you could not make a three-pointer? This was, I think, the number five game of the year for Purdue or I should put it this way, this was the game for Purdue in which they had the fifth highest percentage of their shots from the field coming from beyond the arc, as in three-pointers were the fifth biggest share of the field goal attempts for Purdue of any game all year. And that was against, again, the smallest team in Division One. So yes, Fairleigh Dickinson put together a really, really good effort. You know, Tobin Anderson, their coach, had a really good game plan to pack it in really close and try to make Purdue do exactly what they did. But again, it's the Big Ten champions, the number one seed, against the second best team in the NEC uh, and the smallest team in D1. And I think if you're as good a coach as Matt Painter is supposed to be, you've, you've just got to have more than one way to score uh, in the event that they double, double team your center, which you had to know they were going to do. So Tobin Anderson came from a Division II school, St. Thomas Aquinas, where uh, he had put together some Sweet 16 appearances in Division II. Uh, and he brought along three players with him, including the guy who, if like most of us, you'd never seen Fairleigh Dickinson play, like was the player who really popped, Dimitri Roberts, the five foot eight guard, who, for all of the 
kind of things we can talk about that uh, fairly Dickinson lacked. Like this dude was like maybe the fastest player that um, we've seen in the tournament. Um, and I wonder, Alex, if seeing this team that was assembled from, you know, guys who did not get D1 scholarship offers from guys who are older, um, some of them, I, I think, taking advantage of the COVID, extra COVID year that the NCAA has given. Um, you saw a little bit of this with St. Peter's as as well, like guys from the, the portal or, you know, players who, um, you know, maybe haven't gotten opportunities elsewhere. Should this like kind of change our view or perception of kind of who is able to play basketball at the highest level, who should be getting opportunities and, you know, what sorts of uh, opportunities there are for for programs to sort of, you know, pop at maybe if, if not at this level, but um, maybe, uh, you know, making a little bit of noise in, in the tournament themselves. I think I'll take it as a two-parter as to whether it should change who gets a look to play big time college basketball? Maybe not. But the reason I say that is that as is, there are only so many six foot four combo guards who can dribble really well and run really fast and jump really high uh, and make shots from three. Um, you know, there's with with tons of respect, and I need to emphasize with so much respect, with the most respect that's ever been given to a team talked about in a sports podcast, like Dimitri Roberts or. Uh, Grant Singleton, the couple of of five foot eight and five foot nine guards for for Fairleigh Dickinson, I don't think that their excellence in this tournament is going to suddenly mean that ACC teams are thinking twice about having height minimums for what they're looking for in a guard. Because I, I still think that teams are going to want the athletic profile that they're going to want, and I don't think that that will change. But I do think that the changing composition of college basketball might expand the realm of the possible a bit for more upsets like this. It is totally possible that it's just noise that UMBC wins a game five years ago and FDU wins a game now. And after uh, 20 some years, you know, 20, 23 years or so, or, or I'm miscounting almost 30 years, uh, uh, over 30 years, excuse me, of no 16 seeds winning in the tournament that you get two in five years. It might not mean anything, but it also could be indicative that, uh, that a couple things are happening. It could be indicative that the best teams in college basketball do not have as much high-end talent that can blow these guys away as they used to, which would make a lot of sense if you look at the percentage of, of top draft prospects in the NBA that even play in college basketball, let alone play for more than a year or two. Uh, it is much, much, much lower now than it was uh, in the days when the NCAA tournament was expanding from you know to 64 teams. Uh, and, and you mentioned the COVID year and uh, and the transfer portal. And I think that there are more opportunities for teams lower down the pecking order in this sport to do what you say, to quickly pop. Um, it doesn't take a three to four year buildup anymore for a mid-major to put a much better roster on the floor. Um, you can do it in one week in the off season. Um, if you bring in a coach who can work the transfer portal um, and get players to follow them to, to a given destination, and the team that they're going up against, yeah, I mean, Purdue had Zach Eady, but Purdue also had a couple of young guards who just aren't that good and who will probably never play in the NBA. No disrespect meant to them, but like they might be good college players, but it's not the situation where, uh, you know, you're looking at teams with two or three lottery picks uh, 
together that often in college basketball anymore, unless you're looking at Duke or Kentucky. Uh, and maybe, maybe, maybe nobody other than those teams ever even had that. But I think across the board, there is less high-end talent that can just blow this kind of team out of the water that's coming through college basketball. So we might see more of this, absolutely. And I also wonder whether there isn't some confusion among teams like Purdue, like Missouri, who we'll get to in a second, like Arizona, who we'll get to in a second, who both lost to Princeton, about what to do facing teams that might be smaller, not as athletic, um, a little more dedicated to defending, um, a little better at passing the ball, a little more, a little better at frustrating um, the opposition um, that give them kind of an advantage. I mean, Princeton won these two games and is going to the Sweet 16, the first Ivy team to do that since Cornell a few years ago. They're going to play Creighton. They have a chance to win. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that this isn't even a very good Princeton team. This is not your, you know, your plucky backdooring ball controlling Princeton team. This is an okay team for an Ivy League team. During the regular season, Princeton's best non-conference win was at Drexel, which is 198th in the Ken Pomeroy table. Um, They lost to 179 Navy. They lost to 234 Delaware. In the Ivy League, they lost to Brown, 175, and Dartmouth, 260th, and twice to Yale. Um, And yet they came out here, Alex, and they, you know, Arizona just played a horrific game. Princeton didn't even play that well in the first round. And against Missouri, they just killed them. They won by 15 and basically went wire to wire. Yeah, they did. And I agree with you. I think there's nothing cheap about the way that Princeton wins games and, and has won games in this tournament, particularly the one against Mizzou. I think when when it comes to your mind that an Ivy League team is making a run in the tournament, if you were to ask people on the street, hey, what do you think this team does well? I'm assuming all five would, would just assume that they are making a bunch of threes uh, because they don't have an athletic advantage. They don't even have uh, an athletic matching ability against any of these teams from power conferences that they might play. But that's not really the way that Princeton does it. Like Princeton plays really solid offense, really solid defense, but they're outside the top 200 uh, in three-point percentage. They are in the top 10 uh, in defensive rebounding percentage. So Arizona and Missouri tried to crash the offensive glass against these guys, particularly when Arizona couldn't make a shot, and they couldn't do it. They were boxed out by these Ivy Leaguers for the Princeton Tigers. Uh, They are just a much more... Uh, high calorie meat and potatoes kind of team than I think a lot of people would expect when you hear Ivy League Sweet 16 and they're winning games that way. They score close to the basket. They, you know, the thing that they do do is they don't turn the ball over, which you might expect uh, anytime a mid-major is making a run. So I don't think they're going to be Creighton, but I'm not, I, I certainly would not discount the possibility out of hand. I think it's been a really impressive and and in no way fake first couple of games for for Princeton. And let me be clear, though, Josh, before you talk, that it makes me kind of sick to watch Princeton do this because it reinforces all of the Pete Carrill plucky Princeton narratives about how we do it differently and how we do it better and how we throw out these, you know, these one-star and two-star players and make it work come tournament time. Credit to them, but still makes me kind of want to throw up. <laughs> There's been so much uh, no disrespect in this in this segment. It's the the least disrespectful segment in podcast history. The thing that's so amazing about them, and this kind of gets back to what we were saying about Fairleigh Dickinson, the 180 
of the fact that you can get these new players in um, and maybe turn around your program more quickly is that Princeton had four players transfer out before this season, three of their top five leading scorers, and then a, f- a fourth guy who went to Duke. The other players went to Michigan, Colorado, and Belmont. This is just like Stefan said, this is not a program um, that's built on a core that's been together forever. Um, this is not a program, like Alex said, that's built on great three-point shooting. And, you know, back to this question of whether it's a trend or whether it's noise, like you could not convince me, like, I don't care what the objective metrics say. Subjectively, I think the quality of play in this tournament is really low. And I think it's, I don't know, I don't want to say it's never been lower, but I think you just increase the level of variance when you have, you know, Princeton won that first round game making four three-pointers as a 15 seed. I mean, you have to be playing against a, a team that's doing something rather atrocious when as an underdog you can win in that way. And I think there have been a handful of games like that. But on the other hand, I mean, going into this tournament, if you would identify, could identify a team that maybe uh, was a, a low seed that had a chance to go far, look at Oral Roberts, which went on a run a couple years ago. Um, the player that led them on that run, who is small, uh, Max Asmus, came back, decided not to transfer out, still at Oral Roberts. They had an amazing regular season, won their conference, um, came up against a Duke team that had a bunch of freshman talent, um, but had, you know, had come on a little bit at the end, end of the year, but, you know, had not done anything like hugely amazing during the regular season. And Duke just blew the doors off of them because they were you know, better talent and and more athletic. So for all of the trends that we can look at and talk about um, that, you know, maybe would give these teams an advantage, like Oral Roberts would beat the doors off of Fairleigh Dickinson, like probably 95 times out of 100. But it's just, a you know, Alex, these are, you know, one game, winner go home type situations. And and so uh, I, I just, I do think that we can go a little bit too far um, in making kind of grand pronouncements, but I, but I also feel like weird stuff on all, all ends of the spectrum is going to continue happening just because of the nature of the sport right now. Alec, before you talk, Alex, I want to just throw one little addendum to what Josh said about Princeton. The guys that transferred transferred because the Ivy league didn't give players a COVID year. So they yeah. weren't eligible to come back to Princeton if they wanted uh, to, to, to fulfill all of their uh, NCAA eligibility. Yeah, the Ivy League does things its own way, uh, including during the pandemic and, and holding the line uh, and not playing seasons when just about every other conference uh, in Division One athletics did so. But Josh, I, I think you're right. And I do come back to it again that Part of this is just that there aren't that many players in college basketball, singular players right now, who can run a game, just absolutely run a game and be a complete failsafe against something going horribly awry for for their team. I mean, there are several, um, Brandon Miller for Alabama, who has obviously been in the news for uh, non-basketball reasons, to put it uh, euphemistically, as they might be put on a broadcast sometime, is one of those players. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis at Indiana is one of those players. Zach Eady is one of those players, but you saw how he could be neutralized uh, if you play him the way Fairleigh Dickinson played him. Um, you know, maybe Jaime Jaquez for UCLA can carry the Bruins back to glory, even if UCLA has 
you know, significant problems against, I think it's Gonzaga that they play next. And obviously, Josh, as you mentioned, we we do know that Gonzaga is going to win this year, as we've discussed. Um, but there just aren't, and Drew Timmy for Gonzaga is, is a similar similar player to Hawkes in that way. There are not that many guys in college basketball right now who, when things are going really, really badly for their team, can just decide with a snap of a finger, okay, like, fine, we're still winning this game because I play for this team. And I think that kind of high-end talent train to developmental leagues, uh, to Europe, to places other than the NCAA Division One also comes into play. And it makes it easier for the portal uh, for the COVID year, not in the case of the Ivy League, but in other, in other leagues, to give teams an opportunity to beat, if not Blue Bloods, because that's not what Alabama is in basketball, really talented teams that are that are on the higher seed lines. Alex Kirshner is writing about the tournament for Slate. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Alex. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Up next, Alden Gonzalez of ESPN on the World Baseball Classic semifinal between the United States and Cuba. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. On Sunday night in Miami, number nine hitter Trey Turner's two home runs helped lead Team USA to a 14-2 route over Cuba in the semifinals of the World Baseball Classic. The U.S., which won the WBC the last time it was held in 2017, will look to go back-to-back in Tuesday's final, also in Miami, against the winner of the second semi on Monday night between Mexico and Japan. But on Sunday, the on-field competition wasn't really the top story. That's because, as ESPN baseball reporter Alden Gonzalez wrote, a Cuban national baseball team had never played in Miami before. There were Cuban flags and jerseys and caps, and also protesters rushing onto the field, chants of Libertad and Freedom for Cuba. Joining us now is Alden Gonzalez, who was at the game on Sunday and who wrote a big feature published last week with the headline, What the 2023 World Baseball Classic Means for Cuba. Welcome, Alden. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we get to the big picture stuff, I wanted to ask you about the game and the atmosphere, as you put it in your Twitter bio, your Miami-born, Cuban-bred. So can you explain what it felt like to watch the U.S. play the Cuban national team in your hometown? Well, first of all, it was surreal, just as a son of Cuban immigrants, to witness something like that, which truly, once you strip all the complexities from it, is a historic event, an an unprecedented event, as you alluded to. Um, The atmosphere was was a very energetic atmosphere. It wasn't, I, I know the headline was that there were three fans who rushed onto the field. It wasn't so hostile. It was actually just a very mixed reaction. 
I thought it was actually pretty funny. Um, you know, Cuba would get a hit or they would rally and score a run and you would hear an eruption of cheers. But then Joan Moncada and Luis Robert, the two major league players who are playing for Team Cuba, which I'll sure, I'm sure we'll get into, every time they came to bat, there were boos. And every once in a while, you would hear these uh, Libertad chants break out or Patria y Vida, which has been basically the rallying cry of uh, anti-government sentiments toward Cuba. Um, those would break out as well. So I would describe it as just it was energetic. And it, there was a lot of mixed emotions. I mean, there's no, there's no better encapsulation, I think, than if you stepped outside of the stadium about half an hour before the first pitch. You saw a lot of fans with Cuban jerseys and caps and um, flags draped around their back coming into the ballpark. And then if you step right outside of the gates, you saw dozens of people protesting with a police presence. That's... That, that's the complexity of having Cuba in Miami. It's There's no real answer to it. It's just a complicated situation. Well, it's also this was a complicated team, and the way this team was structured was both historic and controversial. This is the first Cuban national team that's that, that Cuba allowed, invited major league players to be part of. Um, this is not a Cuban team where you were expecting defections. This was not a Cuban team that was stacked because of all the defections over the last 20 years, 20 plus years, that have depleted um, and, and, and weakened Cuban baseball. Yeah, and I think those two are correlated, right? I think sure. baseball and the product of baseball had fallen off so much over these last I want to say dozen years and due in large part because of just the plethora of players who left the island. I mean, well, one thing that I noted in my story is that players used to leave in their mid twenties, right? After they had established themselves and they had gotten the attention of scouts and there was interest from major league teams, but it got to a point where before promising players even reached that point in their careers, they were leaving at 17, 18 years old. And it was because the product that, baseball in Cuba had fallen off so much that the parents of these children just didn't see any promise there. And it was like, let's get them out of here now. But as you mentioned, it was very controversial to have two major league players playing for Cuba for the first time. A lot of people would say that it's because of the diminished baseball product on the island. Some people would also say it was from the pressure of starting to try to form an independent team for the World Baseball Classic outside of the government. But Look, if you look throughout Major League Baseball, there are Cuban stars everywhere. And you could form a pretty legitimate sort of all-star team based on just Cuban-born players. But there were only two because a lot of them either weren't invited, a lot of them didn't want to play. And for a lot of them, both of those situations apply. Tell us about the conversations that you had with those players, um, some of whom weren't invited, some of whom were and decided not to play. Um, and... There was, I, I believe, at least one player who you quoted anonymously because it's such a fraught situation that they didn't want to have their name kind of associated with their their comments. So yeah, just tell us about the reporting that you've done and the conversations you've had with these guys. I don't, I don't blame players because you know they're not they're not well schooled in geopolitics and they sometimes have to take on a subject matter like that in situations like this and. You know, I Luis, Mon, Luis Robert and Joan Moncada didn't want to talk. They knew I wanted to talk about just sort of the complexities of uh, and just sort of the dilemma of playing for Cuba 
Um, I spoke to Aroldis Chapman and Aled Diaz in particular. I spoke to other players off the record as well. Spoke to some young players like Miguel Vargas and Oscar Colas. It's interesting because, you know, one thing I wanted to try to um, hit home in that story was just this lacking sense of patriotism that exists among Cuban-Americans because it's so difficult to separate the baseball from the oppression of that government because they're hand in hand, right? I mean, the Cuban Baseball Federation runs that team and the Cuban Baseball Federation is in lockstep with the communist government in Cuba. And for a lot of players, it's just playing for Cuba and for a lot of fans in Miami, the reason why you saw the protest, rooting for Cuba means supporting a government that made the lives of these people very difficult while they were living there and forced them to leave. And then they couldn't come back and they had to leave their families behind. And, you know, pre-social media, a lot of times like their families would uh, would be subject to some abuse, especially if there was a promising player who left um, and they were characterized by the government there as traitors. And, you know, their reputation was was completely sullied and their games were never aired. And so I'm sure a lot of them have this longing to be proud of their Cuban roots and to try to separate that from everything that goes on over there, which is why this movement to start this independent Cuban baseball team became so popular. You know, they were going to start a a team independent of the Cuban government to play in the World Baseball Classic that they hoped would be more representative of the true Cuban talent in the United States. But obviously that's not possible because they're not going to be a governing body of the organization that sanctions this event. So it never had a chance to get off the ground. But my sense from players was the players that I spoke to, a lot of them say they're never going to play for Cuba um, so long as, you know, the government is involved. But another point that they wanted to make was it's not the player's fault, right? Like all those players who are playing for team Cuba now a lot of them played together, right? And they know how difficult that is. And they know that they're not getting paid much money. And they don't want to come out and completely rail against the team because they care for those players, you know? And so that's, I think that's the difficulty of it. But there's a segment of players that will just never, are never going to agree to play for Cuba. Well, one of those players is Randy Rosarena, who right now is star, who, who has been starring for Mexico in the World Baseball Classic. Um, born in Cuba, defected, went to Mexico, lived there for a few years, became a Mexican citizen just so he could play for Mexico, he'll never play for Cuba. And there are a lot of players who fall in that bucket with him, a lot of really talented players. Right, and that's the that's the the conundrum. It's it's who do they represent when when you put on a Cuba national team uniform? Are you representing the government or are you representing the people who love baseball? Um, and how do they square that? I mean, do you see any... Um, any solution here? I mean, you know, you, you talked about this movement to create an independent Cuban baseball team um, apart outside of, of the government. And you said it's not possible because they're not a, an accredited federation. But what's stopping the World Baseball Federation from recognizing um, an independent group like this and making a statement about the Cuban government's oppression and treatment of all of its citizens, but also baseball players? That's a fair point. And I wonder if maybe if there's enough pressure, it'll get to that point. I would imagine that there would be a lot of a lot of controversy that comes with that. And just how do you maintain consistency in terms of recognizing uh, an organization that's not affiliated to the country? And if that starts happening with other teams as well, that's 
that's complicated subject matter that I don't know the answer to. I don't know that that would happen in the near future. Um, I will say, though, one potential easier solution, which I would say is probably still a long shot, but this is something that Aletmus Diaz told me. Aletmus Diaz is a veteran infielder in the major leagues, Cuban-born. He plays for the Oakland Athletics now. And he's very well spoken on the subject. And he said, look, the solution to this can be very simple. If you could appoint a manager who is not affiliated with the Cuban Baseball Federation, right? Um, when this independent organization was trying to launch, they already had a general manager, which was Orlando Hernandez, El Duque, who is a revered Cuban pitcher. He was going to be the general manager. The manager was going to be a gentleman by the name of Brian Pena, who is a, a former major league catcher. He's a current minor league coach. He doesn't live in Cuba. He's not tied to the government. And they thought maybe that could be the solution if you appoint um, if you appoint a manager who's not with the Cuban Baseball Federation, that would get guys to join. That would get them to, at least in their minds, be able to separate the baseball from the politics, which is just perpetually intertwined in Cuba. We see this in Venezuela, right? Like a lot of players don't, don't agree with what's going on in Venezuela, but they have a, a man by the name of Omar Lopez who is in the major leagues. And they feel okay playing for him. Uh, we see it, and this is not a similar situation, but Yadier Molina, a longtime catcher, is the manager for Puerto Rico. He's not tied with the Puerto Rico, with any of the of the officials in Puerto Rico. Um, will that ever happen, though? Will Cuba ever allow something like that to take place? Probably not. And so I think the short answer to that is I don't know that it will ever change. And I think at least in the foreseeable future, I think this is just going to be the reality uh, of the dynamic with Cuba. Cuba finished second in the inaugural World Baseball Classic back in yeah. 2006, haven't um, been as as high as fourth in the ones since. I guess they will be in this year's event. Just so much has changed um, since 2006. And I'm actually curious to go a little bit further back. You know, I'm, I wonder what the sentiment was in Miami, maybe for you growing up, kind of at the height of Cuba's success in international baseball with all of the success in the Olympics. Was that kind of fraught to be watching and, and cheering or not cheering for Cuba when um, it was really the glory days when players hadn't left in the numbers that we see today? What was the sentiment around those teams? You know what? Uh, and this might be a boring answer, but I think the sentiment around those teams regardless of how good they are or how bad they are, is apathy. I think for a lot of Cuban-Americans, especially those in Miami who left and who are still raw with the emotion of everything that happened there, there's a desire to just sort of, at least for the generation of my parents, right? So my parents came over in the Mariel boat lift in the early 1980s. And I think there's a desire to just separate from that and to just not want to deal with it at all and just prefer to ignore what's going on with Cuba because you're not interested in it. And it just stirs up a lot of bad emotions that people don't want. Um, and so I think there's just this desire to separate from it. But I do think for maybe younger generation, a younger generation of Cuban Americans and not everybody, um, there's no one answer for everybody, but you, you get the sense that there's this sort of, fatigue over hatred about Cuba. And it's like a lot of them, they understand why it's there. Um, but 
they just want to get to a place and and I don't blame them and you could and you could find flaws in their logic if you'd like but they long to just be able to root for their home country and you know try to make that separation and I think a lot of the people at the ballpark yesterday are those people younger people who just they want to root for the Cuban team because they're from Cuba like it's not any more complicated than that and I think a lot of the people who wore those Cuban jerseys does it mean that they support communism I don't think so. I think they just want to root for baseball, right? And, you know, you can't blame those people either. Uh, but I think largely dependent on generation, if you grew up under Fidel Castro's reign, if you didn't, um, I, I, I think it at, at the very least alters your perspective in some way. And I think the, uh, the something that dovetails with that, Alden, is just looking at the enthusiasm for this tournament, particularly from the Latin American fan bases. Um, you know, there was a, a little blip last week after um, Edwin Diaz got hurt celebrating uh, a Puerto Rico victory, um, and Jose Altuve was injured when he got hit by a pitch over whether the WBC should exist at all, and there are players getting hurt, and it's not fair to the regular season, and they're major league clubs. And Keith Olbermann had a particularly um, block-headed response, um, to which your colleague at ESPN, the soccer writer Luis Miguel Echegaray, um, had a really great thread, I thought, explaining why this is so important in countries that love baseball in Latin America. Um, and. I think what you're driving at is that Cuban fans just want to see the best Cuban players play together with a C on their jersey, even if they don't endorse any of the politics and 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 empathize with and understand what their parents and grandparents went through to get to the United States. Yeah, and I, I think um, to be an American and to say that the World Baseball Classic doesn't matter, I think is a little bit myopic. Uh, and it's just um, just not wanting to understand, not understanding or perhaps not wanting to understand just what baseball means in those countries and what this event in particular means in those countries and how much the people over there look forward to it. I mean, if you look at, if you were in Miami for games when the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and Venezuela played, or if you were in Phoenix when Mexico played, you would understand just the passion from those fans. But I'll take it a step further. If you're not around these teams and you're not around this environment, you don't really understand what it means to those players. Those players want to play in this. Randy Rosarena, who I brought up, petitioned the Mexican president two years ago to become a citizen because he wanted to play for Mexico in this event. This matters to these guys. It mattered to all those guys in Venezuela. It mattered to them in the Dominican. It mattered in Puerto Rico because they know how much it matters back home. And I will tell you, Team USA caught a lot of flack in 2017 because the sentiment was that they didn't care enough or their star players didn't care enough. And I think Team USA winning it all in 2017 and players coming back to tell their peers about just what the experience was like and what those games were like. A lot of those players in Team USA, they'll say it matters. Trey Turner hit a grand slam the other night for um, for Team USA to advance past Venezuela. He said that was the biggest home run of his life. Paul Goldschmidt hit a home run for Team USA to beat Cuba the next night. He said that was probably the biggest hit of his career. This is big stuff for them. Even though 
their their big salaries are with their major league teams during the regular season. They care about this stuff. You might not as a fan, and that's totally understandable, but you can't just dismiss this event as just some exhibition that MLB put on to generate extra revenue. That might be part of it, but people care. The, the atmosphere and the intensity with which these players play indicate as much. Josh, we didn't even mention, we haven't even mentioned Japan, Josh. Japan against South Korea on March 10th, a 44.4 TV rating in Japan, outrating all sports competitions during the Tokyo Olympics. Amazing. And besides, what other chance is Mike Trout ever going to have to win a championship? But I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, Alden Gonzalez is a reporter for ESPN on baseball, and we will link to his great stories on our show page. Alden, thanks so much for taking the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Up next, David Epstein on one of the sports world's greatest innovators, Dick Fosbury of the Fosbury Flop. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In 1963, a high school sophomore in Oregon named Dick Fosbury leapt over a high jump bar at a track meet with his back parallel to the ground for the first time. The next year, his local paper captioned a photo of him, Fosbury flops over bar, and said that he looked like a fish flopping in a boat. Three years later, on Sunday, October 20th, 1968, the same day that Jackie Kennedy married Aristotle Onassis, Fosbury won a gold medal at the Olympics in Mexico City. The New York Times wrote that Fosbury's unorthodox backward flip gave the capacity crowd of 80,000 one of its most exciting moments. Joining us now is our friend David Epstein. He's the author of the books The Sports Gene and Range, and you should subscribe to his Substack Range Widely. Hey, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Dick Fosbury died last week at the age of 76, and Dave, you wrote afterward that Fosbury hit on something that worked for him and then for everybody. As revolutionary figures and aha moments in sports go, it's hard to top Dick Fosbury and the Fosbury flop. Yeah, he's, I think, the quintessential sort of technique innovator. I mean, there, there are a lot of these, when athletes, we perceive athletes getting better and better and better, and in some ways they are, but it's often the case that this is the result of technique changes in a sport. You know, not just the Fosbury flop, but like the flip turn in swimming caused a ridiculous drop in records. But I think the Fosbury flop is the ultimate sort of iconic one where people had tried all these methods of going forwards and kind of sideways over the high jump bar. 
until Fosbury turned on his back and just did something that everyone thought was ridiculous and totally revolutionized the sport. So I think it's a great kind of symbol for, for innovation and willingness to try something that looks silly in general. I was watching a video this morning from the Olympics of men's high jump progression through the years. And it's really remarkable as somebody who grew up in the world that Dick Fosbury made, I've only known the flop uh, in high jump, um, to think about how when he did the flop, people thought it looked weird and crazy and bizarre. And now I'm watching this video and I'm looking at the stuff before the flop and it just looks so bizarre and deeply wrong to me. Can you describe the techniques that preceded the flop? Um, it obviously can be a little bit hard to, I mean, it's better to, to watch it than to say it in words, but what were those techniques called and how would you kind of try to explain them to people? Yeah, there was sort of a, a mishmash, but I mean, the famous ones were, so scissors was a really famous one in basically the early 20th century, where you pretty much approach the bar, kind of kick one leg up really high, like raquette style or something, and then you you snap it down over on the other side of the bar at the same time the, the other one is leaving the ground and coming up and then snapping down. So it's like you shoot and, one leg up in the air, snap it down over the bar, and then do with the other one. So it looks like scissors. And that's the one where you land on your feet. You land on your feet. That's right. Um, other popular ones were were the Western roll, which is sort of you you approach the bar and and with your you you basically roll over it. Your body's with your face down to the ground, so the opposite of Fosbury, and and sort of curl your body over the bar sideways. The straddle, which was not that dissimilar from that, where again you're going up in the air your face and chest are facing down to the air and you're kind of spreading your legs and putting one over and then curling the other one over. And then there were, there were variations of that. There were the Western roll and the Eastern roll. And, and in large part, what they look like is someone jumping, turning their body sideways and trying to just like squirm over the bar any way they can. And sometimes it looked really awkward because they would be landing in sand or sawdust. And so it was just like more violent than, than graceful, I would say. And I think it's really striking just watching the 1968 Olympics finals. Um, there were three competitors left, uh, another American and a Russian, um, and Dick Fosbury. And the other two dudes do the straddle. And it's like you watch them and you're thinking, oh, they're going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> they, they can't possibly win jumping over the bar that way. Um, and that's you sort of realize then, well, a couple of things. One is the audience reaction is sort of astonishment. Like, people looked at Dick Fosbury, even though he had competed, you know, locally and um, in college in Oregon and at the U.S. trials, but people who hadn't ever seen him before were astonished. Yeah. Like, what is this guy doing? This can't possibly work. I mean, it doesn't seem very intuitive, right, to think that you'd run and jump backward. That's not like a experience that people have anything to relate to in their normal life either. Um, you think you, you want to get something, you run and you jump forward and you grab it or whatever it is you're doing. Uh, and so I think it's, it is odd. It's normal because we grew up with it, but it is an odd looking thing to think about running and turning backwards and it requires uh, some technique. But for us who grew up with this, it's right. It's, it, it reminds me of this, this clearly apocryphal story called Columbus egg, which is, you know, supposedly Christopher Columbus um, was in some group of explorers who, after he got to America, were saying, oh, that's 
obviously like you were going to get, you know, or to the Americas, obviously you were going to get there, you know, no problem. It's easy to see you just a straight line. And he, he asked, well, you know, Hey, here's an egg. Can you, can you balance it on its tip? And people try and they sort of can't do it. And then he takes it and, and hits it down on the table. So at the bottom cracks a little bit and then just balances it there because the bottom is crushed. Says, see, now it looks easy. Now you can all do it. And the point, again, I don't think there's a grain of truth in that story, but the idea is that something that seems obvious, it really takes someone to try and show it, and then suddenly it seems obvious. And it's also interesting just to put yourself in the mindset of someone watching Dick Fosbury. It's hard for us to sort of recognize in real time um, innovation or what it must have felt like to see someone do this something that seems so unusual and so impossible. Yeah, think about it now. I mean, think if you were watching the Olympic final in high jump now and you saw someone try a different style. You would think it was nuts if someone tried to flip over the bar or something like that. Because especially in sports, right, people tend to go with the status quo. And I think the way technique often changes is against recommendation. And then someone who's just not feeling like the technique fits them or not getting to where they want to go decides well, it's not working this way, so I might as well experiment with something. Uh, and that, that was the case for Dick Fosbury. I think a couple of things that kind of complicate the Fosbury story in an interesting way are that the coach is often blamed in situations like this, right, Dave? Yeah. That, that yeah. It's a classic story of, oh, you have to do it this way, and the athlete bucks up against that. But in this case, wasn't there a, an argument that what he was doing was incredibly dangerous because there weren't really foam pits back then. And there were legitimate concerns from <laughs> perhaps uh, adults or people, you know, minding their athletes in this case, that you could get horribly injured by landing on your back. And then the other thing, Stefan found this and, and shared it in his notes, is that it wasn't a singular innovation. There was a Canadian yeah. girl, a teenager named Debbie Brill, who developed the same technique around the same time. She just was doing it not on the Olympic stage or not on mm-hmm. as big a stage, so didn't get the attention. And she was a little bit younger than than Fosbury was. And Fosbury also, Josh, gave credit to a schoolboy in Montana who was jumping in a similar experimental style at the time. My, my guess is that there were... I've, I've been really interested in this phenomenon called multiple discovery recently, which is the fact that most innovations are independently... Uh, uh, you know, discovered or lighted upon um, by a number of people at the same time. Even even things that are world changing, paradigm shifting, like calculus and evolution by natural selection. Uh, I think in this case, it is the fact, right? That's just the guy who won the gold medal. I mean, I wonder if Fosbury had won the bronze medal, would we have seen the Fosbury flop take off in quite the same way? I'm I'm not so sure, but but clearly he was not the lone. Uh, the, the the innovator with this like lone insight. It was rare, but clearly there were plenty of other people experimenting. And I think some of that that experimentation. This was an example of you know technology driving technique because, as you said, it made sense to tell him not to flop over on his back when he was going to land on something hard. And then as foam pits became more common, that that sort of took away a lot of the risk of experimenting and trying to innovate. Another thing that I think complicates the story that's often told, and maybe that we've been telling too, is that I was looking at the world record progression, pre-flop the world record seven foot, five and three quarter inches by Valerie Brummel of the USSR, set in 1963. Then we have 
Fosbury come along in 1968, and as Stefan says, you look at the video, you're like, obviously, the people with the non-flop technique aren't going to win. But then if you look at the world record progression, 1971, Pat Matzdorf, US 7-6, uses the straddle technique. And the first flop world record wasn't until Dwight Stone's in 1973. So, you know, Dave, it's not like the flop came in in 68 and just immediately everyone went to the flop. Immediately everyone who did the flop was beating everyone who didn't do the flop. So I found that a little bit fascinating that even though it took a little while maybe to prove that for everyone this was the best technique, um, it, you know, it, it didn't go away just with Fosbury. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other aspects to it that make it difficult, like the run-up and where you kind of, if you look at if, if you look at high jump in slow motion, you'll notice that a lot of jumpers are running up and then they're keeping their plant leg kind of stiff and they slam down on their Achilles tendon and it sort of works like a spring. Um, and and that's that's a actually pretty tricky technique. You have to approach the bar at at, at kind of a you know particular angle, um, and so I think and and then transfer all of you know, your, your energy into a different direction. And so I think it's not so easy. And the, the, one of the reasons, like the physics reason that the Fosbury flop works so well is mainly that you can keep your, your center of mass low by dangling, ideally dangling your head over one side of the bar and your legs over the other. And if you picture a really good curl, someone would be almost a donut and their center of mass would be in the middle of that donut and could pass under the bar while their body passes over the bars. They don't have to get as high. But to maximize that, you really have to get good at, at hanging parts of your body below the bar while you're going over. And, and that's not so easy. I mean, even Fosbury wasn't that great at that. Um, so you see athletes doing it now, and it's, they're, they're incredible at it. But, but I think that's, that's been a progression of after, after the, the main innovation, a lot of tinkering to really get it right. Yeah, and Fosbury never really gave himself an opportunity to get better. He was 21 at those 68 Olympics, and like many Olympians of the time, couldn't afford yeah. to continue to train and compete. He didn't compete again. I mean, I think he uh, he actually did uh, go to the U.S. trials in 72, didn't make the team. Um, the other interesting complicating factor, Josh, sort of parallel to what you were talking about, is that after Fosbury, records were broken pretty continuously, but they haven't been for a very long time. Fosbury, in one interview that I watched, said that the high jump uh, technique changes every 40 or so years, but the records um, for the high jump were set last for the men, Javier Sotomayor, in 1993, and for the women, Stefka Konstantinova in 1987. Um, that's a long time. I mean, what accounts for do you think that stagnation? Is it that this particular human technique is unimprovable or have we just not seen the next innovation in this sport? That's a really good question. I mean, first of all, on, on the women's side, a lot of records are, are stuck in that period, the so-called mega doping right. period. Um, and some of them are if progressing at all, progressing slowly. Not that athletes can't dope now, but they can't dope as much as they did in the past. And that had a massive impact on women's and, records. So and Javier Sotomayor had two drug bans, one of them that, for anabolic steroids. That's right. And so so that's one thing. Um, but I think, um, you know, 
I, I, there are some records are kind of like even the mile record in track and field is from the 1990s. And so I think there is a slowdown of progression and sometimes either technique or technology changes come in and knock us off that plateau. And we're seeing that right now in some of the running events in track where this new shoe foam and carbon fiber plates has suddenly shifted the entire performance curve basically. And people are running faster than they were. And so I wonder if that'll translate to high jump because the speed of an approach does matter. And so if, if, if those shoes can, and track surfaces can make a difference in how fast people can, uh, can approach the bar and how springy they are, maybe we'll see some record, but also there, there is a limit somewhere. I think high jump is not at its peak of popularity. Um, and so it, it may not necessarily be, um, selecting for, for the people that would be the best at it in, in a lot of places in the world. Uh, and we don't really know where the limit is, but there is, there is some limit, right? And maybe we're getting closer and closer to it. We see in a lot of events, even when records continue to get broken, it's by smaller and smaller and smaller margins. So the period of like records being broken every time there was an Olympics, um, was, you know, I think that was a period in time of like the second half of the 20th century, where for the first time, a lot of people were starting to compete and equipment and technology and technique were coming along really quickly. And records can still be broken, but I don't think it's as much of a given anymore in in just about anything. Again, with the occasional intervention of new technologies like we're seeing right now um, with shoes and track, and I, I think we're sort of just at the beginning of that. A good marker of high jumps relative uh, popularity or unpopularity is that when I was trying to Google why hasn't the high jump record been broken in a long time, all of the results were about why hasn't the long jump record been broken for a long time? People just apparently are more interested in that sport, which is it's on its own relatively unpopular. Um, but there are all these lists. I think we we all found them of different sports innovations, and the Fosbury flop is often at the top of it. But in looking at um, some of the other things that it's compared to, you know, Dave, you mentioned the flip turn. There's also um, the axle and figure skating, the Yurchenko vault. And one thing, you know, the thing that's common in all of them, it's that they involve jumping or landing backwards. Hmm, um, interesting. The, the Yurchenko vaults, um, gymnasts got more power by approaching um, the uh, spring backwards, the axle, you land backwards. And it's like what you were saying before, Dave, um, you don't often think, or most people don't think about doing something backwards as the yeah. best way, but um it seems we should try like, that in everything. Somebody and, should like try running the hundred backwards. You know, you never, you never know. It looks, it might look I'm silly. I'm going to turn around right now. There you go. <laughs> you should do podcast, podcast backwards. backwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then a couple other ones that I thought were interesting. Um, and this was from Adam Mark, a, a blogger, um, the bun dunk in competitive eating by Kobayashi completely oh. changed, <laughs> changed the game. Everybody, nobody did it before him. And then everybody did it after him. And then um, the granny shot made most uh, popular by Rick Barry uh -huh. at the free throw line. And that is a technique. Um, I think there's some disagreement here about whether it's objectively a better technique and what I, I think maybe the sample sizes aren't large enough. But the reason that the sample sizes aren't large enough is that unlike the Fosbury flop, it's a technique that didn't catch on because it was perceived as embarrassing. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's interesting... That, Even though Rick Barry was like a, I don't know, 90% free throw shooter yeah, one or of, something. Correct. One of the best of all time. I mean, Will Chamberlain famously said, I've, you know, he, he was bad at free throws. He changed 
to the um, underhand free throw shot. Um, that's what the granny shot is underhanded. Um, he changed to it one season, improved to shooting percentage by 10 points, but then he abandoned it and said, I felt sissy shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. I know some of the best foul shooters in history shot that way. I just couldn't do it. And, and that's what you wrote in your Substack, Dave. You wrote, you sort of wrapped things up in that piece by saying, most of all, I hope Dick Fosbury and his flop will stick in your mind as a great example of someone who was willing to try something, specifically something that looked silly when the old way wasn't working for him. Yeah, I mean, that that granny shot story is amazing, right? Because you think of elite athletes doing anything to get a tiny marginal edge. And here's something that seems like for some shooters can offer a large edge, but it it apparently is past some bar of acceptable silliness that even the Fosbury flop did not approach, and so the people just won't do it. Um, you know, I hope that I hope that kind of thinking doesn't translate to like entrepreneurship or whatever in our society, because I think then we'd we'd miss out on on probably a lot of uh, interesting innovation. David Epstein is the author of the books The Sports Gene and Range. Subscribe to his Substack, Range Widely. Dave, thank you for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me, guys. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. In addition to slaying Purdue, Fairleigh Dickinson generated a couple more plucky little guy stories this past week. One was that the school doesn't have a band, which is understandable because of its 5,500 undergraduates, two-thirds attend part-time and 70% commute. FDU was one of eight teams that had to play a first four game in Dayton, Ohio, to qualify for the field of 64. In the past, the University of Dayton's Flyer Pep Band has played for bandless first four schools, including for FDU in 2019, but he couldn't schedule the gig because Dayton looked like they might make the NIT. It didn't. So a high school band played for FDU on Wednesday, but after FDU won, the Dayton band decided to travel to Columbus to support FDU. An FDU athletic department official dug up the score of the school's fight song and sent it to the Dayton band, which learned and played it. None of the FDU players had ever heard it. Here's the band playing the FDU fight song, which I think, based on my own Googling, is called Oh Fairly Dickinson. Can't be sure. The second plucky little guy story also was about something FDU was revealed as not having, in this case, a full-time sports information director. Rather than pay someone, FDU has outsourced the job to a go-getter undergraduate named Jordan Sarnoff. On the one hand, pretty shocking that an NCAA Division I school that fields varsity teams in 12 women's sports and eight men's sports, and as longtime sports PR executive Joe Favorito noted, had made March Madness in 2019 and won national titles in bowling and fencing, doesn't have a full-time sports communications person. On the other hand, pretty cool for Jordan Sarnoff, who's wanted to work in sports media since he was a little kid. During the FAU game, the True TV camera zoomed in on that dapper-looking young man courtside as play-by-play guy Andrew Catalan called Sarnoff before throwing to sideline reporter Jamie Erdahl. He's fulfilling a destiny at this point. Jordan Sarnoff, at 12 years old, went to the Bruce Beck and Ian Eagle Sports Broadcasting Camp. His mom made him go. 
and he figured out what television broadcasters need to make great TV. He met famed New York Mets PR guy Jay Horowitz, and he realized, wow, all the players love Jay Horowitz, and he gets free gum. I want to be a sports PR guy. And so he walked into the athletic department at FDU as a senior in high school and said, I'm coming here next year. Can I be a sports information director student? And here he is as a full-time guy as a junior. It's unbelievable. Good for that kid. Josh, what's your Jordan Sarnoff? The big upset in the women's NCAA basketball tournament came late on Sunday night in Palo Alto, California. The home team, number one seed Stanford, got ousted in the second round by number eight seed Ole Miss. While Stanford did have two close losses in its last three games coming into the tournament, it was still a shocking result. Consider that mighty Stanford, led by legendary coach Tara Vanderveer, won the national title in 2021 and made the Final Four last year. And two of the Cardinals' three leading scorers from that 2021 title game, Cameron Brink and Haley Jones, are still on the roster two years later. Ole Miss, in the meantime, had missed the tournament for 15 straight years before last season. As recently as 2020, they went 0-16 in the Southeastern Conference. But head coach Yolette McPhee-McEwen, better known as Coach Yo, has engineered a remarkable turnaround in Oxford. Here she is after Sunday's win in an interview on ESPN. What does it mean to you to have taken this program to where it was? Coach Yo, you're about to head to Seattle for the Sweet 16. You just beat a number one. This is for the people with a dollar and a dream. I'm a little girl from the Bahamas that was given an opportunity. I wasn't Ole Miss's first choice, but I was the right one, and I was naive enough to think that I could do it, and that's what no ceilings means, that there's no limit. And so I'm just really proud to be the head coach here, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say, bro. We're going to Seattle. I love Seattle. You heard a few snippets of her life story in there. Uh, a story by David Eckert in the Mississippi Clarion Ledger fills in some of the rest. She's the daughter of a basketball coach father and a school principal mother. And growing up in the Bahamas, she used to wake up at 5 a.m. to practice her game. She'd become the first Bahamian woman to sign a D1 letter of intent playing at Rhode Island. And shout out to Joel and the Anderson family. She then went on to coach at, among other places, Arkansas Pine Bluff, where she also got a master's degree in physical education. Education. In 2013, she became the first Bahamian woman to be a D1 head coach, getting the job at Jacksonville. Uh, she then moved on to Ole Miss uh, a few years ago. And back home, she's been elected to the Bahamian Athletic Hall of Fame. She was in the 2016 class alongside a couple of other basketball immortals, Buddy Heald and John Quill Jones. And last year, she worked as an assistant for the Bahamas men's national team during the qualification round for the Basketball World Cup. Going into this year, Ole Miss lost its best player, Shakira Austin, who went number three overall in the 2022 WNBA draft. But the 40-year-old Coach Yo appears to be building an enduring program, this season led by players like Madison Scott, Marquisha Davis, and Angel Baker. Given her drive and personality, she could maybe, maybe do something like what one of her role models, Don Staley, did at South Carolina, which had no real tradition of success before she got there. At a press conference before Ole Miss beat Stanford, Coach Yo talked about how Black women coaches like Staley and C. Vivian Stringer have inspired her, and she also made a pretty good analogy. Obviously, there is a connection I have with C. Viv and Don Staley. So I hope what I'm doing, and to me, to be able to 
us to be able to win and beat a blue blood, like you mentioned, is is a is a great story. Aren't we in the Bay? That's why everyone loves Steph Curry, because when you see LeBron, you like you really can't be LeBron, but you could be Steph. You know what I mean? What is he six two? Never uh, thought of that before. Uh, Stefan, but uh, Steph, what is he like six two? And look, we don't want to, you know, say that uh, Coach Yo is going to be the Don Staley or should be the next Don Staley. But her uh, motto is no ceilings. So I'm just trying, trying not to put a ceiling on her, Stefan. I didn't know anything about Coach Yo until this informative afterball, Josh, and now I am totally rooting for Ole Miss. She seems awesome. And women's basketball is still a sport um, where a coach can take over a moribund program and totally transform it. I mean, we've seen it with Don Staley. We have obviously seen it with Gina Oriema, for for example. Um, And it is good to see someone like her with her background get the opportunity to um, take a program and build it into something huge and enduring. And it's an investment that's worth it for a school, right? Like, you know, with, you know, whether it's football, men's basketball, any number of other sports, you can't really say with any confidence that if you just hire a smart and charismatic, you know, coach to lead the program, that anything will kind of enduring be accomplished. But I think this is a sport where, um, you know, not all examples, but there is both recent and long-term history to suggest that um, it really can work if you hire the right person. Yeah, and the opportunity is still clearly there. I mean, even if you look at the results of the first couple of rounds of the tournament, there's a lot of chalk still on the women's side, but you're seeing more breakthroughs. You're seeing more of the established um, larger schools develop better programs, like we just saw with Ole Miss and Stanford, um, as well as mid-majors performing well. So there's still that room for growth, Josh, that you're alluding to there. And this really has been a 20-plus year, 30-year almost um, evolution. I did a story in the late 90s, where I mid to late 90s, where I went out to um, a Big Ten school that had decided to focus on women's basketball and were getting attendance. You can still, there's still that room for growth all these years later. And for someone like her, you know, one more round for Ole Miss and the attention that Coach Yo is going to get is going to, is going to increase uh, enormously. And that's going to give her program an opportunity to do what some of the other schools like Mississippi State, for instance, which has had a successful program that wasn't always successful, have done in recent years. That is our show for today. Our producer this week filling in for Kevin Bendis was the legendary Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Listener.